Right. Well, if you have your Bible, let's turn today to the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking at two small passages in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 995 and 996 as well. And if you don't have a Bible at all, then please take that one. It's our Mother's Day gift to you today. All right. Uh, let's just read these verses. It says here in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then over in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When we think about the women in our lives and the women in church, and we think about the commands that the Scripture gives about men and women, sometimes there can be such a focus on the things that seem weird to our culture. Things like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, obviously, that's a verse that sounds very strange in 21st century America. The fact that the Bible gives different roles to men and to women, it just seems weird. It seems countercultural. And I mean, I guess countercultural is the nice word for it, and those who disagree with it would have bad words for it. But we as Christians, we as, as a church that loves and affirms God's word, we need to make sure that we don't focus so much on the quietly and with all submissiveness part that we miss the first part, which says, let a woman learn. Now, you might not realize how countercultural that was in the first century in Judaism as, as Christianity was springing up. You may not know that it was actually radical within first century Judaism for women to be allowed to learn. There was actually in the Jerusalem Talmud that's recorded for us uh, something that would, would be a summary of a popular view uh, from a, a man named Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus. He says this, It is better that the law be burned than it should be taught to a woman. Wow! Can you believe that? There was this widespread view at that time that women were not good at learning, and if they did learn, then they'd twist everything and they'd mess it all up, and so you'd better just not do it. Better to just take the Torah, throw it in the garbage rather than teach it to a woman. Well, Jesus came along, and Jesus showed that those ideas were radically wrong. Now, you can see in the Old Testament that those ideas were radically wrong. They're not Old Testament ideas. They were just false religious ideas that had become popular at the time. But Jesus would do things like come up to the Samaritan woman at the well and sit down one-on-one -on -one with her and teach her, which was scandalous to the disciples. Why would he be doing that? And then you see that as he sat down in the home of Mary and Martha, and he had Mary, who was Martha and Lazarus' sister, who was sitting at his feet and just taking in his teaching and loving it. And he said to Martha, this is what you should be doing instead of being so concerned about serving. That's a paraphrase. And then you have this carried on too into the New Testament church where there's this incredible concept that had not been taught before, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, that all of us, regardless of those distinctions, stand in front of Christ on equal ground at the foot of the cross, equal access to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, equal access to the Scriptures. And on, on the Sabbath day, it says in Acts 16, 13, that, that Paul and his companions went outside the gate in the city of Philippi, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. You, you see this throughout the New Testament, that there is just this radical change in what would have been normal to the culture of first century Judaism, where now it was freely offered to women to come and to learn and to be built up in the faith. And the Bible shows us also, not only should women be learning, but women should be teaching now, in appropriate settings. Most of us here would know that the Bible puts certain guidelines on that, but listen to this. In Proverbs 31, verse 26, it's talking about an excellent wife. It says, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Or in Titus 2, verses 3 and 4, older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. Or in Proverbs 1, 8, the instructions to the son, forsake not your mother's teaching. Oh, that's a good one. That, let's hold on to that one today for Mother's Day. Forsake not your mother's teaching. All right. So the fact that the Bible gives different roles to men and to women in the church and in the home, that's a true fact, but we should not let that give us a low view of women. And it shouldn't give us a low view of how God uses women in the church and in the home. We sometimes say, and I've, I've said it before, you may realize this, it's apparent if you think through it, the church is always one genera generation away from extinction, right? Well, how do those coming generations, how do they come to faith? Well, they need to hear the gospel. They need to be taught the scriptures. And you know what? This is the primary way that God does that is through the home. And as we're going to see today, through mothers, through mothers. So as we come to 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, as he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, and we've got to know where are we in the Bible, what's going on, what's the context of this. It says at the top of my page in my Bible, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. The second letter of Paul to Timothy. Who is Paul? Well, he's the guy who wrote the book of Romans that we've been going through for quite a while. He is one of the apostles of Jesus Christ who was chosen uh, by Jesus and radically converted on the road to Damascus uh, so that he could then be raised up and be a worldwide missionary and church planter and uh, spreader of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century. An incredibly important figure in the beginning history of Christianity and somebody that God used to write 13 of our books of the Bible. That's who Paul is, but who is Timothy? It says it's his letter to Timothy. Well, Timothy is someone who, at this point, when he receives this letter, and the first letter to Timothy as well, is serving, it seems, as the, you might call it the lead pastor, the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, we know, had multiple elders, as was the command of the New Testament for each church, even before they raised up deacons that they were commanded to raise up elders. And so they had multiple elders, but they also, within that, seemed to have a particular elder in each church who would be sort of the main preacher, and Timothy was that. That's why Timothy is getting these letters. 
And so Timothy is somebody that God has raised up to use in a vital role in the leadership of the church and the leadership in the building of the spread of Christianity in the first century. And how did that happen? How did it happen? Well, it happened in part because he met Paul. And Paul realized this is somebody that God has given great gifting and great grace to, somebody that I can take under my wing, and so Paul had trained him. But before that, something also had to happen. We have some insight into this. Back in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, do you hear that? The situation that Timothy grew up in was having a believing mother and an unbelieving father. How did that situation come about? We don't know. We're not going to pick that apart. I don't recommend getting yourself into that situation, but that was the situation that Timothy grew up in, a believing mother, an unbelieving father. But how did he come to faith? Well, it says right here in 2 Timothy 1.5, he came to faith through the witness of his mother and his grandmother. Ah, just beautiful, amazing. How is it that Paul was able to come to this city and to find this young man whose name was Timothy, who was a believer and who showed all of this grace from God, all of this gifting? Well, it it happened because there had been a lot of work that had already come about before this. And that work had been done primarily by his mom. Ah, we praise God for that. So that's where we are, and we want to see in these verses that we've looked at right here, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, first of all, that God uses women to pass sincere faith to new generations. We have to have new generations, and women are absolutely critical to this. Sincere faith. Look what he says. I am reminded of your sincere faith. Now, what's going on here is in these opening verses of 2 Timothy, Paul is giving encouragement to Timothy. He's encouraging him because he's confronted problems that are happening in the church and in Christianity more broadly in the first letter. He's going to confront some of those problems throughout this letter too. But he wants to make sure that he tells Timothy, I see that you are keeping the faith. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to stay where you are and keep going. And he says, I see that sincere faith. I, I remember it. I, I long for you with tears. I want to see you with, with joy. And I remember your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am now sure dwells in you as well. What is a sincere faith? Well, a sincere faith is a not fake faith. Do you know there's such a thing as a fake faith? It's actually, it can be kind of, kind of easy to do because you could, you could kind of look around and you could kind of see, well, what, what do people who have faith do? Okay, well, they do this and they do that and they do that. Well, I can do this and do that and do that. I can go to church. I can wear these things. I can, I can hang around and learn the lingo and, and kind of figure out how to talk like that. Um, you know, I can, I can see the good things that they're doing, and I can do some of those good things, and I can see the bad things that they're not doing, and I can either try to stop doing those bad things or just do them in secret so nobody knows. I, I can, I mean, it's very, it can be a very easy thing for somebody who really wants to, to fake their faith. That's called hypocrisy. 
But what Paul says is he says, I look at you and I see a faith that's genuine, not faked, not feigned, not hypocritical, but genuine from the heart, a sincere faith. What is a sincere faith? Well, it's a faith that is actual faith, as the Bible talks about it. There is, there is such a thing as claiming to have faith when, in fact, it's just that you have knowledge. Just having knowledge is not the same thing as having faith. You do need to know. You have to have some knowledge to have faith. You have to know that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, who was buried and on the third day was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the heart of the gospel. You have to know that, but knowing that is not the same thing as faith. You could also sincerely affirm those facts and still not have faith. You know how I know that? Because Satan sincerely affirms those facts and does not have faith in Jesus. It's possible to say, yes, these facts that the Bible presents about Jesus are absolutely true. I affirm historically that Jesus was God incarnate who came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the the, the penalty for sin and that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and I know that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he's ascended into heaven. I know all the facts about Jesus and I absolutely affirm that they are true. And you can mean that sincerely and not have faith because even the demons believe and tremble. So what is faith? What is a sincere faith? It's not just knowing the facts in your head. It's not just sincerely affirming the facts. It is personally entrusting yourself to Jesus. It's that we receive and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation. Sincere faith is a personal, relational trust in Christ alone as our sovereign master, as our eternal savior. That's the sincere faith that Timothy had, that Paul was affirming, but he said that that sincere faith didn't originate with him. That it dwelt first, he says, in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure now dwells in you as well. When he says, I am sure now dwells in you, if you, 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 hearing that is kind of the way that we would say, I'm sure, it's like, yeah, yeah, probably so. No, that's not what he means. He says, I have seen the fruit of it in your life, Timothy. Say, I'm sure of this. I see it, and I've seen it in your mother, and I've heard that it was in your grandmother even before that. This sincere faith. Now, there are others who are mentioned in these letters to Timothy, as Paul's writing to Timothy and telling him about false teachers and all kinds of difficulties going on. There are others mentioned who had an insincere faith, who who had a, a form of faith that proved through its fruit not to be genuine. He said back in 1 Timothy 1, verses 5 and 6, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. So some people had wandered away from that and didn't have a sincere faith. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
It says, here's another way that people have demonstrated their faith not to be genuine, as they've wandered off to the love of money, where Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. Or in 2 Timothy 4.10, as he's going to say in this second letter to Timothy, he names names. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas did not have a sincere faith. He names names in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Guys, it is a big, important thing to have sincere faith. Not a feigned faith, not a, not a springs up for a little bit and then the sun comes out and it melts away because it has no roots kind of faith, but a faith where we genuinely trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our master, as our eternal savior, and that's going to bear fruit and we will remain with Christ, a sincere faith. The fact of that faith coming through his grandmother and his mother It seems to underscore what he's going to say about Timothy a few verses later in verse 9 where he says he saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose of grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It was God's plan all along to save Timothy because he had his purpose of grace for him from before the ages began. How was that purpose of grace worked out for Timothy? Well, it was worked out because it was his purpose of grace for Lois, his grandmother. It was his purpose of grace for Eunice, his mother. And God used Lois to help save Eunice. God used Eunice to help save Timothy. And it, with that appearing of Christ Jesus just confirmed it all. Just think about this. The time period when they were living The fact that Paul was going around and he met Timothy in Acts chapter 16, this was just a a decade or two after Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead. And and so you think about, well, well, Timothy is there as a young man and a believer, and his mother was a believer, and his grandmother was a believer. You know what that means? Of course, we don't have the timeline all written out exactly for us, but we can kind of piece this together. His grandmother, Lois, was a believer before Jesus came. And his mother Eunice was a believer probably also before Jesus came and probably was around as Jesus came and was crucified and risen. Not that she lived in Jerusalem, but she would have heard about these things as Jesus had come. And now Timothy has faith in Jesus. But i got to tell you this. Lois had faith in Jesus all along. Eunice had faith in Jesus all along. Timothy had faith in Jesus all along. It's just that Probably when Lois began her faith, she didn't know his name yet. She, she didn't know how this salvation was going to come. She, she didn't know how the Savior would come, but she had a sincere saving faith in Christ alone, even before she knew how it was going to happen or what his name was. And that faith was passed on from generation to generation. We'll talk just a little bit when we get to chapter 3 about how exactly that happened. But the way that God brought about his purpose of grace in Timothy's life was through his grandmother, through his mother. A sincere faith first in Lois and then in Eunice and then in Timothy as well. Guys, do you have plans for what you'd like to leave for your children? Most of us probably do. I mean, as you age, those plans would become a little bit more concrete. But... What is it that you think, well, when, when I'm gone, what do I want to be able to leave for my kids? 
Maybe you, you think, well, I want to I want to be able to leave home. I want to be able to leave, you know, a nice nest egg in a bank account. I want to be able to leave a business for them to come and run sometimes. Those are all fine things, but do you know what's the best thing to leave for your children is a sincere faith. And you don't have to wait until you're dead. <laughs> And they go to your funeral and think about what kind of faith you had. You can share that faith with them right now. It is normal for God to save the children of sincere believers. But it's not to be assumed. We can't simply say, because I believe, my children will absorb faith by osmosis. We are called to train our children to share the gospel with them to teach them the scriptures as we're about to see in chapter 3. If you want to see your children come to faith, here's the starting point. Be sincere in your own faith. Be strong in your faith. Personally walk close with Jesus. One of the the greatest worries that parents have for their children, that Christian parents have for their children, is what, what if my children grow up and turn out not to believe the gospel? Walk away from the Lord. What if my children don't come to heaven with me? That's a sincere concern. But guys, two things. One is you can't be the Holy Spirit. You cannot make your children born again. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But one of the ways that he's going to go about doing that is through the means of your sincere faith. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. As you love Jesus, as your faith grows, that's something that's going to be apparent to your children, just like it was to Timothy with his mother and his grandmother. You know, it applies also to other relationships in your life. It says back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I believe it's verse 15, practice these things, or excuse me, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, that's your, your life, your conduct, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. He says right there, it's not just about what you teach, but also about you. Your sincere faith, that's part of the means that God will use to save your hearers. So, it applies to these things. Guys, are you a child with a believing mother? When I say child, I, I mean, maybe you could be 60 years old. Do you think about your mother? Do you think about her as a woman of faith? If that's the case, we, we thank God for that. We know that not everybody has that, but we thank God for that where that's the case. And I, I wonder, do you look and do you think, well, mom is like that just because that's how moms are like. Or, or do you think, you know, that, that's, just, that's just what grannies do. They're just nice and they talk about Jesus. No. You, you need to know this. Your mother was born in sin. Your mother had to be born again. The grace that you see in your mother is the grace of God. When, when you see those things, don't think to yourself, well, that's just how ladies are. Turn and thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit. And let that have an impact on your own heart and your own mind and your own life. It's the grace of God. They had to receive it. You need it too. And it's offered to you freely in Jesus, a sincere faith. Next thing we want to see together, turn over to chapter 3, verse 14. 
is that God uses women to teach godly behavior to new generations. So, 2 Timothy 3.14, but as for you, that's Paul telling Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and how you firmly believed and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Okay, now when he says continue, he's saying, Timothy, stand firm. That sincere faith that I talked about back in chapter 1, verse 5, stay in it, stay in it. But it's not just the, this, this theological idea. It's not, he's not just saying, hold on to the right theological concepts. He is saying that. But in, the, in the, the context of what he's talking about and the verses around it, this has to do also with not departing off into a form of Christianity, which would be no Christianity at all, where, where you could start living however your flesh feels like. That's the context that, that's going on, is that there are those who have departed the faith while still claiming to hold on to it in some sense because they want to run after all of these desires of the flesh. Uh, listen, listen to what's going on in chapter 3. I'm just going to read you the first eight verses, okay? It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men. And then in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. This is what he's getting at, all right? I read you that big chunk just so we can see here what he's talking about when he says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in this faith. Continue in what you have learned and believed. This has to do with saying, don't get led astray by the passions of the flesh, and don't get led astray by the world, and don't start thinking that you are such a strong Christian that you can now bring in all kinds of worldly practices into your life because you are the one who has the freedom in Christ. And those other people are the weak legalists. Absolutely not. But where he says here, learn, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Well, this behavior is something that has to be learned. That, that behavior is often caught. Sometimes we say this, that, that uh, behavior is caught rather than taught, right? And that's the case. We see it. We imitate it. We, we kind of get what's going on sometimes just in the example of others to be able to do that. But, but the behavior has to be taught, too. If we assume to ourselves, well, well, how I act is going to be such a great thing in the eyes of my children that they will certainly act the way that I do. When, we grow, when they grow up. Well, they might act the way that you do in some ways that you don't expect, 
But we also have to teach. We also have to say, here is why we do this. Here is why we refrain from these things. Here is why we do these things. Because it's not just caught. It has to be taught. It has to be learned. And who did he learn it from? Well, look at the words there. It says, knowing from whom you learned it. In my ESV translation here, there is a footnote on the word whom. And it tells you down in that footnote that the Greek for whom is plural. So, who did Paul learn from? I mean, excuse me, who, who did Timothy learn from? Did he learn from Paul? Yes. But the word here says, it's more than just me. And what he's about to say in the next verse, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's making it pretty obvious right now. I'm talking about the people who trained you from the time that you were a child, and I already named them in this letter. Their names are Lois and Eunice. He's saying, remember your mother, and remember your grandmother, and remember how they taught you these things and this godly way of living. He's saying, if you're tempted to go after the practices that the false teachers are spreading, think about your mother. Would your mother want you to do that? That's not a bad thing to think. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to think. Uh, Now, occasionally I I hear about preachers who have started to use foul language from the pulpit in their sermons. Or preachers who, even worse than that, come out in favor of immoral behaviors that the, the unbelieving world promotes. And usually it's some kind of feeling behind that that's like, well, we, I, you know, I'm, I'm the one who is so enlightened that I see that we have this freedom in Christ. And those people who think that I'm teaching the wrong thing, they're just legalists. But you've got to wonder, do they ever think about their mothers listening to their sermons? You've got to wonder that. Would you use that foul language from the pulpit if your mom was in the front row? <laughs> it's kind of an indication right there. Hey, if you have a godly mother... Remember, remember the way that she has trained you. And God uses this. It says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I always have to remind people that's a proverb. That's not a promise. There's a difference between a proverb and a promise. It doesn't mean that if your child has gone wayward, you trained them wrong. That's not necessarily the case. But it does mean this, that we can usually expect that this is how God is going to work. We train up a child in the way that they should go, and they will not depart from it when they're old. And what a blessing to Timothy that Lois and Eunice did that for him, and what a blessing for me that my mother did that for me, and what a blessing, mothers, to your children that you're doing that for them. And we thank God for that. So mothers, set an example of godliness for your children. And children who have believing mothers, don't don't come up with some form of faith that would allow for behaviors that your mother wouldn't like. All right? And then third, God uses women to teach Scripture to new generations. Look at verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, from childhood, you have been acquainted with these writings. Again, who was training him from his childhood? Unfortunately, it wasn't his father. It said that pretty clearly in Acts 16.1, but it was his mother. 
His mother wasn't just training him in how to be a good boy. His mother wasn't just training him in, in here's, here's the best way to act in your life. His mother was training him in the words of Scripture. That's what it says. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Guys, it's the sacred writings that are key here. It, it, we, we need to have the Bibles open in our homes. I, I got to say that I am so, so grateful that as a child, that my mother, when she would put me to bed at night, instead of just reading a fun little story like Where the Wild Things Are or something like that, she would do that too, but, but every night when she would put me to bed, she would open up her Bible and she would read to me. Now, some of you may think to yourselves, well, I don't know if I am all that great at the Bible to be able to teach it to my kids. I, you know, I, 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 I pay a pastor to do that. Or maybe I'll find a different church where they have a full-time youth minister, and I'll pay him to do that, or something like that. Well, you know what? We do want to train our kids in church, but the way that the Bible sets it up is that the primary place for training them in the Scriptures is at home. And that's what, that's what his, his mother did for him. And, and if you think, well, I, I'm not equipped for it, do you own a Bible? If you own a Bible, you're equipped for it. If God has given you a Bible and a child, you're set. Now, does that, does that mean you'd never have to grow in your faith or learn anything? No, we're always growing in our faith. We're always learning. But you can also always, no matter where you are in your faith, you can always open up the Bible and read a part of it and pray with your kids. You could even sing a hymn. You know, take one of the hymn inserts that you took home in your bullets and say, Let, let's sing this together. Or maybe you've got a hymnal at home or, or something like that. But, but guys, we can open up the scriptures together in our homes. What a blessing that is for us who've had our parents to do that. And what a blessing that'll be for your kids when you do that today. The, the, the reason that it's such a blessing is because it says here it's the sacred writings. The sacred writings. That, that, that's a big statement right there. We don't want to skip over that statement. That right there, just that term for the Bible that he uses, says an awful lot about the way that we need to view these words that are in front of us and this book we have open. This is not just a book. This is not just like everything else on the shelf at Barnes & Noble. This is the Word of God. And when we open these pages, this is holy. These writings are not like other writings. This is from the finger of God. Every word of it, every bit of it, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, through human authors in their language and personalities as God in his sovereign will has seen fit to breathe it out and it is the scriptures. And when we have those scriptures and when we treat them as scriptures and when we open them up in our home, it says that you can be made wise unto salvation. It's eternally important. Would you want to go on a ride in an airplane where the pilot thinks that the air traffic controller's instructions are just one good option among many to consider. I wouldn't want to be coming in for a landing and, and hear the, the pilot say, I'll think about that. And if that's the case, then why, why would we want to barrel into eternity, treating the Word of God as anything less than sacred and authoritative? He's told us the truth. 
He's told us where we are. He's told us where we're going. He's told us who he is. He has told us of his love in Jesus Christ, and it's all laid out for us here in Scripture. And it's sacred, and it's able to make you wise to salvation. Psalm 119, verse 98 says this, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. If we have the Word of God, we are determined to know and to follow the Word of God. The way that the Bible talks about that is wisdom. No matter how smart somebody else is, no matter how many interesting ideas they may have, no matter what they may tell you is the better path, we have wisdom right here. And it's not just wisdom as far as, well, what should I do next in my decision making? It's wisdom that makes us wise for salvation. Where did, where did all this begin for Timothy? Well, it began with his mother teaching him about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it says here that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, specifically through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you know that he's talking about the Old Testament? Isn't that neat? The, the New Testament was obviously not finished at this point because Paul's pen was at about 2 Timothy 3.15 at this point. And so when he says the scriptures, the sacred writings, he's mainly talking about the, the, the scriptures that had already been completed at this point, which would have been the Old Testament. And he says the Old Testament scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And some people would say, well, Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. Or Jesus is just here and there, maybe mentioned sort of in a future prophecy like Isaiah 53. But the way that the New Testament takes the Old Testament is every bit of this is pointing us at Jesus. Every bit of it. And as we take the whole Scripture seriously, it is going to show us that we are sinners who are laid bare in front of God's perfect law as those who need forgiveness that God is the one who provides that forgiveness and that God is sending a savior, a rescuer, better than all the rescuers that came through the history of the Old Testament. We're waiting on the perfect son of David and now he's come and his name is Jesus. And as we open up the scriptures, it's not just gonna be an instruction book. The Bible is an instruction book, but that's just law. We need the gospel and the Bible lays it out clearly, not just what God expects of us, but what God has done for us that he has sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins so that we can turn to him in faith and have forgiveness and eternal life. So mothers, what do you do? Well, teach the scriptures to your children. And children, what do you do? Thank God for your mothers who do this and determine that you're going to do it too. Determine that you'll do it too. Now I want to say, just as, as we have seen here what's gone on with Paul's, or excuse me, with Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother. We have to acknowledge this in Timothy's situation that, that not every family situation is going to be exactly as we hoped it would be. Because Timothy's family situation isn't exactly as you'd hope it would be. Yes, he had a godly grandmother and a godly mother, but he had an unbelieving father. We know that not everybody gets a believing mother either. We know that God has saved people in this room out of situations where they were not brought up in anything close to a Christian home and where there were all kinds of unexpected circumstances. And we are so, so grateful that God's gospel is able to be the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that it comes through the preaching of the gospel. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime through the gospel going out. We are so thankful for that, and we're thankful also that he often does it in families. Now, if, if you are a godly woman, and God never put it in your life to be a mother, we have to trust God's providence in that, but that doesn't put, us, put you outside of the ability to open up the scriptures with another coming generation, and to be able to sit down and to be in people's lives to open up the Bible, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to become a, a mother in the faith to someone. Not everybody gets to have a mother who knew the Lord. Not every woman is, is uh, in a position to be able to do this because they don't all know Christ. But I'll, I'll say this. Every woman is called to know Jesus. Every woman is called to have a sincere faith in Christ, to have godly behavior, to have knowledge of the Scripture that can be passed on from generation to generation. And so look to Jesus, trust in Jesus with a sincere faith. And when we see that that's been done in women, when we see that that's been done in mothers, grandmothers, these precious ladies that we love so much in our lives, we can look at that and we can say, that's a work of God. And we can thank God for that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given these ladies who are right here in this room. Father, I just, I think of specific people who are just such godly women. And I thank you for them. And God, I pray that you would do the work that I know that each one of them would pray. That you would save the members of their family if they don't know Christ already. And God, I pray that, uh, that you would grant faith to be passed from generation to generation. We know that that doesn't happen automatically. And so I pray for your help in our faithfulness in opening up the scriptures to teach a new and coming generation the word of God. But God, we, we just thank you for the ways that you have worked. We thank you for the evidence of your grace for the giftings that we see in these ladies who are in our lives. We pray that you would bless them and build them up. Uh, God, we, we pray that you would grant them to grow in Christ. God, grant them high seats in heaven. Father, we pray that you would help all of us to do exactly uh, as it has said in 1 Timothy 1.5, to have a sincere faith. We know that ultimately that is a, has to be a gift of God And so we pray that you give it. Father, I pray that if there are any who have no faith or who have a false form of faith that's not a sincere faith, I I pray that you would turn them uh, not to some kind of power of their own to change their faith, but turn them to Jesus to know who he is, to trust in him as master and savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.